I think sometimes when you take the, what has been, I don't like the phrase, the cafeteria approach, right? The going in and picking and choosing the pieces you like. Um, I find that a little denigrating, but when you take that approach, you are left a little isolated in terms of figuring out um, how to put the pieces together. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Blum, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Uh, good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce herself. Nicole, please go ahead. Hi, thank you so much for making time and space for me. Um, my name is Nicole Savita. And um, I'll just start by saying I really, really love the name of your podcast. Mm. Um, it speaks to two things that I feel are among my favorite things to do in life. Mm. So um, thank you for making this space. Introducing myself is always kind of a, a funny challenge. Um, and I'm going to resist starting with the professional introduction today. Mm -hmm. I'd like to to give everyone a chance to listen to a, a maybe deeper and more nuanced version of me. Um, and I start with my my earliest memory is, is being in a vegetable garden um, in Queens, New York, in a very urban space. Um, which is where I was born. The garden was a garden planted by um, my paternal grandfather, my pop-up, and um, his mother, who by the time I was a baby was was nearing the end of her life, um, my great-grandmother, Egedia. And my very first memory as a toddler is crawling among the curling bean plants and being tickled by the tomato leaves. And um, my favorite thing to do, I'm told, is is to dig out the radishes and to pop them directly in my mouth, still mm -hmm. hung with soil um, bits all around them and to just make sounds about as spicy as the radishes <laughs> that I put into my mouth, crunching. Um, and so I reflect on that a lot and I don't think it's a coincidence that it is the first very early kind of, you know, bright pops of clarity memory I have. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course, no memories longer and who knows what parts of that are my own and what parts of that are the stories I was told about yeah. my family and myself but it does feel feels material and reachable in mine um and I've come to realize here in the middle age phase of my life that I am most content I'm most aligned and I'm most grounded um when I am a gardener mm. and I mean that physically in the sense of tending a piece of land and growing um, food for my family and my community. But it's not something I do professionally. I'm not sure I'm particularly good at it or better than average. Um, and I'm also not sure that matters at all, which is what I really love about it is a space um, where I can keep learning, where I can constantly 
embrace imperfection and surprise and emergence um, and sort of being with the land and being in co-creative tending with a part of the earth. That's where I'm able to access a really deep sense of belonging and interconnectedness and really generative entanglement. I think I used to think of the word entanglement as a negative, and now mm -hmm. I, I see it as really a positive. Um, and that sense of entanglement is palpable and it's it's awe-giving for me. Um, it's where I feel myself as part of a living planet in a connected universe. And it's even where I catch glimpses of myself as both a descendant of people who I don't know much about um, and as a future ancestor. So where my relationships mm -hmm. can kind of span across time and across beings um, just by attending to where we are in the season. And so none of that is what you'll find in my professional biography or my CV, um, which is also really varied, um, as varied as what I'm working on planting this season. Um, I've been I've been a writer. I've been a systems thinker. I'm trained um, as a lawyer. I have a a JD from Georgetown, um, but also an LLM, a legal master's degree. After that, in food and agricultural law from the University of Arkansas. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I I fancied myself a writer and a storyteller. So I focused on American studies, but also creative writing, did the creative writing program at Columbia um, and wanted to find all of the stories in the city and mm -hmm. uh, sort of to garden those stories as well. Um, and so I, you know, I've, I've been a writer, a thinker, a lawyer. Um, I've spent the last 10 or so years in and out of higher education spaces, um, sort of not on a traditional tenure track, but in a wide range of positions across a wide range of institutions, large public research universities, um, kind of elite private schools, um, a tiny, tiny little college where I work right now mm -hmm. up in rural Northern Vermont, um, where I am the vice president for strategic initiatives at Sterling College, where I run the EcoGather initiative, um, I've been a nonprofit leader. I've, I've um, co-convened a food systems workers advocacy group called Project Protect Food Systems Workers. Maybe find most meaning in that mentoring relationship that happens with students. Um, and I, I work as a consultant. I have a small consulting practice called Plenty Enough, which sort of mm. um, summarizes my philosophy on the world and what yeah. I'm going for. Um, finding plenty and enough and questioning what is enough and what is plenty and whether they are the same concept. Um, and then really a lot of that work has been focused in and around the food system. Um, so if I had to put some kind of frame around it, it is focusing on the food system. Um, and because the food system is so vast and encompassing, it hardly narrows anything down. Um, at least not the way I approach food systems. I think about it much more than supply chains or, you know, sort of farm to table. I like to think about it um, as sort of culture um, all the way through what we make, remake of ourselves and then back around again and it's circular reintegration. And so that takes us um, on a very, very capacious, long curving journey, and hopefully one that links back around. Um, so I've done, I've done work, I've moved all over the country. Um, I've lived, I'm grounded in New York City, um, and 
the New York area is where I grew up and where I went to college. I've lived in DC and Los Angeles. I've lived up in southeastern Alaska, um, in Arkansas and Colorado. And I feel like I was moving all around the country, trying to make sense of things, trying to dial in, tune in and listen more. Um, and I think maybe less charitably to myself, I was always imagining that somewhere else, some other place and space would have the answers, would feel right, um, would have a set of challenges I was more, I felt more capable of solving or, mm -hmm. um, and my good friend, Michelle, who you spoke to a couple of weeks ago, calls that pulling a geographic, right? Like just getting up and leaving and going somewhere else. And so I would say that um, I, I now live in rural Northern Vermont. I It's the only place I've lived and come back to. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's my way of, of restoring that pulling a geographic and saying, no, instead I'm gonna choose a place and I'm gonna root in. Um, and this is the place from which I'm going to do my work. This is where I'm going to um, live my life, plant my roots, allow my children to plant roots. I have two children um, who are in elementary school and a wonderful partner and um, a house full of pets and small livestock now. So um, yeah, that's a bit about me. No, and, and um, you know, for the listeners, I, I think what you picked up here is that, uh, Nicole, you have been in many places, you have done a lot of different things, um, but also I, I think you have been very good in, you know, observing and, you know, trying to understand, um, you know, working in different fields in different situations and i mean i'm saying this uh, for the listeners because i really think that's what you feel in the book as well you wrote a book uh, together with um michelle uh, albach who was indeed a couple of weeks ago a guest on the on the podcast so at that time the book was not published as yet uh, the, the book is uh, is available since the beginning of this month it's called resetting our future feeding each other shaping change in food systems through relationships and we will talk a little bit about it but i, I really think um yeah folks should check check out that book i, I think it's it's an important book um and it's it's it you know it was very uplifting uh for me to to read so so uh and you know the situation is not it's not all um easy there are a lot of things going on that are not going well with humanity and nature but this book gives hope so so i definitely want the listeners to uh to know that and to check it out i would like to go back to the beginning um you know how you started you know so you were in queens um in this uh, little garden environment were you alone doing brothers and sisters or or other uh, family members of your age who you're playing with how was how was that and the reason i'm asking is that i think relationship is really important uh, for you right so connections so yeah yeah so i am the oldest in in my immediate nuclear mm -hmm. family um i have one sister who's a couple years younger than me and so because this one memory that i i started us with is from when i was so young she was not yet a part of our lives um and so okay. in that 
in that memory, you know, I, I sense my parents near my grandparents near and um, even my great grandmother who was only alive until I was about three. Mm. Um, and, and yet who I also have some very powerful concrete early memories of. Um, and I remember people referring to her as a witch, um, which I now know is an identity that's actually a really important identity. And mm. um, that side of my family is all Italian. And um, so there's a lot of history around the identity of um, Italian witches and folklore and folk healing um, and folk Catholicism and um, herbal medicines that I've brought into to my own life and, and not necessarily had a direct line from, um, mm but have been able to kind of find a connection to and reconstruct in some of my life. So I have a sense of um, intergenerational relationship. And I had the very good fortune for when we left Queens and moved to New Jersey to live in an intergenerational household. We had a, it's called a mother daughter house, though it was my father's parents who lived downstairs from us. Um, and so I did have what has become increasingly in the US, um, a kind of rare arrangement of growing up um, in the same house in the same building as my grandparents for many of my formative years. Um, and I think for me, that's in fact where plenty enough comes from my grandmother's one of my grandmother's phrases was Oh, that's plenty enough good. Mm. Um, or that's plenty enough, right? <laughs> like it depended on the situation, but um, yeah. but that's where that phrase comes from for me. And I think I I had at least the benefit of um, a couple of generations of knowledge and perspective and wisdom. I did not have the benefit of sort of a deep set of lineage or ancestry. We didn't have a very large, I didn't grow up around lots of siblings or with um, close, my father's an only child. So mm. there wasn't close relationships with cousins. I didn't have that sort of um, idealized, you know, like lots of children running around at events. Everyone was quite a bit older. Um, and my family, my family, as I understand it, came to the U.S., um, in the early 20th century, and then made that bargain that many Italian and, and Irish immigrants made of whiteness um, for acceptance, for mobility, for privilege and power, and, and in many cases for access to jobs and labor and um, the very things they needed to sustain themselves. And so while we had food, we had, we had recipes that mm -hmm. certainly my grandmother learned from her mother, um, and that my grandfather learned from his parents, we didn't have much else. We didn't have language. We didn't have story. We didn't have folklore. We didn't have art and music. Um, and so I think I've really, at this phase of my life, been preoccupied a little bit with trying to learn more about those relationships that are out of reach and invisible mm -hmm. to me, um, about what maybe came before the relationships that I was fortunate to be steeped in is that then, that... yeah is that then also maybe the reason that um you know you have worked and lived in many different places it very well could be um i i have always felt a little bit itinerant and a little bit nomadic mm -hmm. certainly there were periods of time in my um in my 20s where i really felt like a new yorker i felt like that's where i was born and this was my identity and i felt um, maybe a kind of obnoxious amount of pride that like, oh, if I can, if I can put up with all of this, if I can survive and even thrive in this context, that that is itself a form of worth um, mm -hmm. and achievement. 
And then I got really tired, <laughs> tired yeah. of, of all of that. And in fact, some of my, um, my undergraduate research at Columbia University in upper Manhattan um, was around the experience of urban life in New York City in both life and literature. Um, and I was applying the social scientific theory of overload, which basically says that like we all have a filter um, that we use when we are overstimulated and we're often overstimulated in modern life. And that filter selects what we do and don't pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And so you and I could be standing um, at the corner of 116th Street and Broadway at the same moment and perceive very different things because we're each going to attend to different stimuli based on um, based on our past experiences, our identities, our interests. And I think I got kind of overwhelmed at a certain point by, by that very sense that maybe I couldn't quite know what people around me were truly feeling and experiencing, that it was, there was a lot of noise and not enough signal and that I was struggling to connect in those ways. And it's not to say that there's not community inside of big cities. There is of course community. There's, there's the people you see, you know, that share your same commute times who you wind up forming these interesting odd relationships that start with knowing glances across the subway car. Um, and there's there's much more that is that you can build from there, but I I got to a point where I felt like I couldn't find myself in all the noise, and so some of that moving around was for work. I mean, when you work in um, higher education, you often move for jobs, but some of it was sort of to try to try on different places mm -hmm. um, and to see who I was. Um, and what parts of myself came out differently in different locations. Um, and it turns out I, I quite like myself in a place that others might characterize as the middle of nowhere, mm -hmm. um, but feels very much somewhere and somewhere very important to me. So, so uh, and you are from Malt now, right? So, so if people ask you now, you know, where you're from, you will say Vermont or will you say New York? Or <laughs> Great question. I never quite know how to answer it. So I usually answer it with a question that says, do you mean where I went to high school mm -hmm. or do you mean where my heart is? And um, and then the answer kind of varies based on that. And it usually invites a question or conversation around this sort of semi-nomadic existence I've had. But I think the reason it's hard for me to... Um, to narrow that down is because I feel like I am from all of the places that I have lived in some ways. And then also we came to a point where it was like, now we have to, now we have to choose because there's something about the being and the staying that feels really real. But in Vermont, um, they call all of us who are not from here and not from here for several generations, flatlanders. And I will for as long as I'm here, I will always be a flatlander. I have a, a dear friend um, who I work with who appears in the book. Um, her name is Heidi Myers, and she she is not a flatlander, and she is generations and generations from the Northeast Kingdom. Um, her people are here. Her family has, you know, the streets are named after them and their farms. Um, 
I've, I've driven around the hills with her and seen where her ancestors are buried. And that's not something, that's not a kind of relationship I'll ever be able to have with this place. But I do, and it will take potentially generations should my children decide to raise children here. Um, but it's been really interesting to see what has happened with my kids when they, now that they feel like they are securely planted in a place and that they can form a relationship with it. And so I'm, I'm equally from Southeast Alaska and Northwest Arkansas mm -hmm. and New York city and um, Northeastern Vermont and many other places in between. No, I think I can totally relate with that and, and uh, the listeners know that I've lived in many places as well, but I totally get what you were, how you were answering that question. Uh, before we go to the book, because I really would like to talk with you about the book, um, just for the listeners, a little funny sidestep is, is that you mentioned uh, in your example about when you're talking on, on, the, on the corner of 116 and Broadway, that's that's around the corner of my or you know the office of my organization and that's also where you studied right that's also where the university is so that's kind of maybe we were you know it's for some point of time we were standing on that corner exactly um, <laughs> yeah hey and um, that's also where michelle went to college though 10 years before mm, me and uh -huh. we had no idea that we had that connection oh i didn't realize so we met that. and started working together yeah, and then yeah. realized that we had um professor mentors in common, that we had so much shared experience of, you know, whether it was a pizza place or a bar or a park or a classroom. Um, and it's one of those things that um, for me is a little bit of magic in our collaboration yeah. and our co-authorship um, is that while we've had very different lives and work um, that we do have these pieces of overlap. And I'm always interested in finding where those pieces of overlap are for, um, for any group of people. Yeah. And, and you, and again, I definitely feel it's one, it, you know, you've written it together with you. That book is, is one voice. So, so, uh, um, Nicole, I are you uh, are you dancing enough? Am I dancing enough? It's a good question. Um, tell us a bit about you know why why you guys are talking about dancing in the book. Yeah, so we talk a lot about dancing with systems, which we get from Danella Meadows, who unfortunately um, passed away, leaving us with some of the best work on systems thinking, taking systems thinking out of just sort of MIT where it began and out of sort of the modeling and the engineering of systems and into the spaces where humans can see the systems they create and interact with them. Um, and as she tells us, learn to dance with them. And when I first read her piece, Dancing with Systems, it really changed my life. Um, it changed my career. It it gave me gave me back some of the brain I had before I became a lawyer. Um, and I'll I'll just take a little detour to to share that with you, yeah. and then come back to the mm -hmm. the very good question about whether I am dancing enough. Um, I remember a point in law school. So I went to law school because I had all of the sort of social justice motivations bubbling up in me after um, 
an AmeriCorps VISTA service year in Northwest Alaska, working with a Clinket Indigenous community, working with children who um, who had very loving families and who had yet been experiencing various kinds of abuse and neglect, working to patch up some holes in an educational system that was underfunded and um, overstructured and not really responsive to, to the needs of early child development and literacy development and learners. And I came back and I did some social work and I felt like I couldn't make a change. I couldn't make a difference in the lives of the kids I was working with. And that maybe the people who could were the lawyers who were representing them and who were advocating for them. And I started to think of myself, the possibilities of being an advocate. And so I went to law school, which um, back back when I started, which was 2004, everyone was fond of telling us, you can go be a lawyer and you can do anything with a law degree. Um, and I think that's actually not entirely true. I think it's really good to go to law school if you'd like to be a lawyer um, or if you'd like to write legislation. And I think there's lots of other forms of knowledge that I'd rather see lifted up um, for all of the other things. But it was sort of a like, ah, take a hazard at this. You'll you'll certainly gain some skills and, and they'll be transferable. Um, and early in the process, I felt myself, felt my brain changing. Um, as somebody who's always kind of seen all of the connections and been interested in the nuance and been really interested in the relationships among and between people, between things, between people and places, between cultures and stories, um, and hanging out in the gray. The kind of training you get as a legal writer um, is about being very precise and very specific, and it's fairly prescriptive. Um, and there's also something mercenary about it. It's training to take on um, someone else's cause, someone else's gripe, and you might believe deeply in that cause, um, or you might not. You might be hired to represent an interest, and it's very adversarial. It is about um, fighting as hard as you can for each position, and then having a third-party arbiter make a determination. Um, none of that is how I operate. None of that is how I want to operate. None of that lives in my heart. And, and yet, it's a very big investment. Um, it's a, it's created sort of path dependency for me. Um, certainly the, the student debt associated with all of that did. And, um, and I felt myself really adrift after my first couple of years mm -hmm. of practice. Um, and I also felt myself really concerned about, um, my increasing at that point in time, awareness of the climate crisis of environmental degradation and just sad about it all and curious about the connections between um, those inequities and social challenges and deep sadnesses, separations in communities and the environmental damage. And so I went back to law school, which is counterintuitive, right? Because here I was already in this thing, but I saw the possibility for food and agriculture to be a place to study where those things came together. And so I got deeper into thinking like a lawyer but in the context of a food system. Um, and at the beginning, I kind of thought I was like, oh, food systems. So I must be doing something with systems, but we didn't really talk about it. It was just kind of the label. Um, and it was after I had finished that program and began teaching in it that I think I picked up thinking in systems for the first time and started digging into Danello Meadows' work and recognizing 
that the worlds we create, including the worlds we create through law and policy, um, but also through culture and economics and um, our material existences are all human created systems. And that there are also natural systems that pre-exist, predate us, um, and that we can influence, certainly, but we cannot necessarily, we, don't, we are not the designers of, we're not the architects of. And I got really interested in, okay, what does it mean to change systems? And Danella tells us we don't change them by... Um, sort of, we don't change them in these mechanistic industrial kinds of ways. We change them by dancing and moving with them. Um, and that was a way back into the part of my brain that was truly relational. Um, and so now I talk about my work as being um, about relational food systems, doing relational food systems education and writing and consulting, um, which is in some ways a little repetitive because systems are inherently about relationships. Um, but when I put those two things together, it is a way of lifting up a way of approaching relationships within a system. And that was a long way back around to the question of whether I am dancing enough. Um, but I think hopefully it, it illuminates for listeners a bit about why you might ask me that question. Um, after an introduction that did not mention tap, jazz, or ballet. Um, and I, I think that I am dancing, but I also think I'm in a phase of listening for new rhythms and new beats that um, maybe hadn't been as prominent in the circles I was working in previously. Um, and so part of dancing with systems is knowing when you need to dance with the music that is playing and knowing when it's time to um, maybe change the genre or to listen for a different beat. And that's definitely a phase I feel like I'm in. So, um, you know, since you... You, you, because before we started talking, you were, you were um, telling me that, you know, yeah, as a result, I, I think two things happen when you write a book, although I've never written a book, but I imagine that it is like this. When you finished it, you know, there are things where you go back to, oh, maybe I should have put this in the book. I'm happy with the book, but, you know, you, because you start continuous to, to think. And then second is then you start hearing um yeah, and other things that people find in your books, right? Um, and and that's maybe what you're alluding to now that you're listening, you're now in the listening mode. So my question is, what are you hearing at the moment? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right about that. And I'm I'm not going to call myself any kind of expert on writing a book, having done one. But Michelle has written many and supported authors through many others. And um, <laughs> When we were when we were writing, there was a point at which she was like, "We have to stop now. Um, you have to let it go now." And it was it was cute, and I felt I felt sort of you know very much um, naive and precious in a way where she said, "There will be another. There will be more." Um, and and that was a little bit freeing, right? Because um, for me, one of the hesitations and one of the reasons when I had been invited several times before. Um, 
to author a book, I said no. It's because I didn't feel like I had, I didn't feel like I had enough, um, or that my perspective alone was was going to really add something different to the developing canon of food systems work out there. But when this opportunity came, I did feel like I had a unique perspective and certainly that one blended with Michelle's work, that together in one voice, um, we had something distinctly valuable to share. But then you get to this place where it's like, are you like, are you committing to this as being your offering? Um, and what if you start to encounter new concepts, new ideas that challenge what you've put out into the world or complicate it. And I think I've I've had to just recognize that you put it out in the world and you keep learning and growing and you have to have the humility to be able to say, I'm not going to hold on too tight. I'm going to believe in what I put out, but I'm not going to hold on too tightly to it. And I'm going to be willing to dance with it. Um, and so in the in the last couple of months, since we sort of set the final proofs in and and I was told to stop. Um, <laughs> I think I've been spending quite a bit more time with indigenous knowledge keepers. Um, and I've been spending even more time also in the alternative economics space. Hmm. And those two things come together for me in some really interesting ways. Um, I guess to to put a little more story in it, when I first got my my first non-law school food systems teaching job, which was in fact here at Sterling College um, in 2015, there was a class on the books they needed me to teach. And it was the one class that I had said in the interview I was not qualified to teach. Um, and that was economics of food systems. And I was not an economist. I'd um, candidly never even taken an economics course. And so I said, how could I possibly teach this at a college level? Um, but this is a tiny college and we all pitch in, we all do things. And I had to find a way. And the first time I taught it, um, I taught it sort of, I tried to teach it from a neoclassical economics perspective applied to food. And I kept finding myself teaching things and then saying in class, but is that really how it works? Um, we had this sort of strange semester where I would teach these concepts that I thought I was supposed to teach um, because that's what economics is. And I was living the questions while I was teaching them with a small group of um, very generous students and who went on this journey with me. And by the second time I taught it, I had been handed a copy of Kate Rayworth's Donut Economics. Um, and so I said, okay, this is the kind of economics I can start with. Um, and this gives me a totally different frame. There is, in fact, someone who knows this stuff inside and out who wants to redraw the graphs inside the textbooks and upend um, all of the orthodoxy and who really does point out that, like, wait a second, this whole system is one we made and is very out of step with the natural systems that we must learn how to live with. And so as I've you know, I've never been kind of full on in the economic analysis. It's not where my training it is. It's, but I've started to come to realize, and this certainly happened through the writing of the book, um, that often we don't have enough of a critical economic lens in food systems work. We continue to try to make food systems more sustainable within the existing system and its existing assumptions. And so I've continued to dig deeper and deeper into some critical 
eco-feminist, Marxist, degrowth histories of capitalism, um, and lots of different alternative economic thinkers. And I found a lot of that overlapping with a lot of indigenous knowledge keepers who I've also been um, in dialogue with, reading and studying. And so I feel something really interesting happening um, as I kind of braid together um, the insights that I'm deepening from each of those bodies of work, both of which you see in the book and are kind of pulled up and out um, and and into the, the theory, but I feel like I'm going more deeply into. And, um, and that's been really, really wonderful, but it has also required me to let go of some of those insecurities I had about not being an economist, to recognize that actually a lot of that is um, much like in the law, it's a bunch of artifice put around a particular profession to make it less approachable so that the rest of us don't feel equipped to question it um, and its premises. And also then to step back with quite a lot more humility and to really say, okay, beyond just thinking about like, how do we rediscover and rebuild indigenous food sovereignty and food ways, how do we really deeply learn from indigenous ways of being in the world um, and being a force for good on earth? Um, and that's where I've, where I've really found myself in the mm -hmm. last couple of months. I have, I have a follow-up question to you about that. But before I do that, um, I don't know if you're aware, and I'm just reminding my listeners as well, that um, a while ago I had a conversation with a, a Dutch um, professor, uh, Kees Klomp, who wrote a book called Thrive. And one of the authors is Kate uh, Raworth as well. You know, mm. but The book is full of articles about um, existential economics, Buddhist economics, donut economics. So definitely something to to check out for you as well as the listeners Absolutely. um listening to you you know i scribbled before the uh, stuff that you said so tell me about plenty versus enough mm. so i think when i was a kid i would hear my grandmother say that all the time and at first, I mean, maybe I didn't question it at all, right? It's just a thing grandma says, like, oh, that's plenty enough, good. Um, but then I remember, and maybe it's when I'm a kind of cranky, curious, angsty teenager, um, thinking about why are you saying plenty enough? Like, that's one too many words. It's either plenty or it's enough. What's going on there? And I don't know if I ever asked her. Um, I don't have a clear memory of asking her. But as I started kind of stepping back to a relationship with land, when I started gardening, when I started working in food systems, when I started asking some hard questions about economics, um, both of those words just kept coming back to me. And they came back to me with this force of of a real missed opportunity. Like I got kind of mad at that 15-year-old who didn't bother to ask the question um, and sit down and try to find the wisdom behind it. Um, but 
I started playing with those words and asking myself, are they, how are they different? Right. And plenty just seems, you know, you think of a horn of plenty, you think of abundance, you think of um, maybe too much or maybe just enough that you don't feel scarcity, um, that you feel full. And there is something about plenty that isn't in the formal definition, but that is that is tied to also a sense of belonging, of harmony for me. It evokes that. And, and then I thought about enough. And um, a lot of what was coming up for me as I was doing a lot of my exploratory thinking around economics was this concept of limitless and in fact, exponential economic growth and how it felt like we had a, an economy that was hostile to the concept of enough. Um, and then certainly you think about, you know, consumerist culture or the attention economy and the um, way our insights about human psychology are weaponized against us in social media, where we're doing the continuous scroll. And, um, and it felt to me like part of our cultural dis-ease was around really rejecting enough. Mm. And it was as I held those two things that I started to see that it wasn't a mistake, the inherent wisdom in plenty enough. It was honoring the fact that those are the two things we should be holding um, and that we can think about abundance as enough. We can think about plenty, um, but not as an unlimited form of plenty, as, as what helps us feel satisfied and maybe what gives us enough to share. Um, and to be generous with. And so sometimes when we hear enough, either we say, I've had enough of that. It's, you know, I don't want any more of it. Or this is enough, but it, there's a little bit of scarcity there because it's maybe just enough. Mm -hmm. um, but when we put it with plenty, we've got the concept of the generosity of a garden where there is always plenty enough, where there are always seeds to save, um, where you sometimes get more by giving away. And, and that felt really resonant for me. Um, and there was always, no, I don't want to say always, there was often mm -hmm. a sense of joy and contentment and um, gratitude behind when Grandma Rose would say those words together. Um, and like I said, sometimes she would say them not in that tone. Mm -hmm. Sometimes she would say them, you know, as my sister and I were squabbling and um, doing something she wanted. But then the emphasis was always on the enough. That is plenty enough, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but more often it was on the plenty side of it and the way they came together in balance. I would like to use, you know, you kind of your answer to to jump to um, your questions that they ask in relation to my virtual hundred mile walk. But one quick comment about enough. I mean, the, the listeners who have been following me a bit uh, know that that particular concept is also dear to my heart as well as for my organization. We often talk about enough for all. Um, I have interviewed actually many people. Uh, three questions around the concept of what is what does enough for all mean um and it's still out there 
you know, on YouTube. And uh, we've written a song as well with Dutch singer and guitar player uh, called um, "Enough for All." So anyway, so that's that's kind of it's it's funny for, to me how things click. Yeah. Um, so you know, this this particular podcast is a spin-off of a hundred mile walk that I started in twenty twelve. Um, you know, during COVID, I was not able to walk with others during uh, when I walked my 100 miles. So that's why I started this podcast, um, virtually walking with with uh, others. Um, but when I walk, very often I talk about, you know, what is the, why, why are we here on earth? So, you know, because walking, there is something spiritual around this, for me at least. Um yeah, and and one question that that really keeps me busy is what is happening, you know, with the younger generation and religion and spirituality. So my question to you is, yeah, what do you see happening in your community uh, among youths in relation to religion and spirituality? Mm. So I I have the good fortune of working at this very small college. We have um, often somewhere between 85 and 120 students on campus. So we get to know the young people in our midst um, and be in community with them. And so I think I think that's actually been one of my favorite things about working in higher education, though I question the very premises of higher education and education kind of um, cobbled into these brief periods of life where we're learning versus when we're doing. Um, but I, but one of the great things about having been in education over the last 10 years was to be able to stay really connected um, to those who are younger than me and to try to understand what their needs are. Um, and I am constantly aware of the fact that those who are a couple years, a couple decades even younger than I am, than you are, they are inheriting something really, really challenging along many dimensions. And they are really likely to live through periods here in um, the global north, in the US, of severe contraction in many ways. Um, and yet we often continue to prepare them, to educate them as though they need to walk into life in the same, into adult life in the same ways um, that we were all told to. And what I am sensing in young people, the young people I get to interact with, is a very keen awareness of the mismatch between that, of the friction. Um, and I would say that, you know, here in Vermont, I believe Vermont is the um, least religious state. People um, don't identify with a particular faith tradition or religion here more than anywhere else in the country. Um, but I don't think it is the least spiritual state at all. In fact, I think people in their own ways are deeply, deeply spiritual. Um, there's there's a brewery a couple towns away from where I live called Dirt Church. And um, the concept of it is that churches outdoors on the mountain bike trails and that mm. Sunday morning should be for, you know, immersing yourself in the dirt church and then going and having a good local beer afterwards. Um, and that that sometimes to some may seem blasphemous and, and a little, you know, a little unspiritual. But I do think that the way in which people 
relate to the natural world, to the place that they're in and to the communities they care for, um, feels like their spirit is fed in that relational space, um, in what happens among and between humans, among and between humans and the other varied and beautiful life forms we share the planet with and with the places we find ourselves in. But like, even with that sort of fairly, in my mind, beautiful and um, generous and open concept of spirituality among young people, I do perceive sort of some level of lack or impoverishment around the lack of shared spaces and ritual and practice um, and prioritization of that. And so lately, this is one of the things that has actually, I've really been dancing with and has emerged for me in the last couple of weeks even. Um, I think I always had sort of a fantasy, even back from my days of being in New York, when I would sit and write in coffee shops for hours and hours and hours with my roommate, who is now a playwright and continues to do that with her life, which I'm just this much jealous of. Um, but I always wanted a coffee shop. I always wanted to be the holder of a third space. Um, and through all of my work in the food system and whenever the change work or the advocacy got hard, I'd be like, ah, I'm just going to open a coffee shop. And my husband is an amazing baker. And so mm -hmm. that's sort of always been our out there dream together. And it didn't feel right. I was suddenly like, there's something off about that. And then I said to a friend not long ago, I think actually I don't want a coffee shop. I don't want to buy and sell space and community. I want a church and I'm one of the like least formally religious people um, that I know or, am or among them. And I, you know, I love to dabble in other wisdom traditions and draw from them. And, but I have not felt, and maybe it's because of the system's brain or maybe it's because of any number of things. I've not felt like I belong in one particular faith. But suddenly this concept of we're missing church. And what did I mean by that? We're missing a space where people can experience belonging. Um, we're missing a space where people can grapple with the really hard challenges right in front of us and on the horizon and seek and develop and work through existing forms of wisdom together. We're missing a place where... Um, and, and a practice and a ritual of saying, we devote this part of our week, we devote this part of our rhythm of our lives to sharing that space and that time together. Um, and you don't even have to pay the $4 for coffee as the price of admission, right? There is not a buying and selling transaction happening. There is um, there is the church supper, there is the potluck, there is the... and. And so I've been really musing around um, what is the connection between relational food systems work and in Vermont, the absence of active church communities um, or, and I feel like I'm using church as a shorthand in all of this. Um, but I do think that as young people who are finding the strength to face down the challenges they did not create, but are inheriting are expressing and and connecting to the sense of faith and spirit in what is possible 
this relational spaces between. I'm really thinking about what are the new cultural containers um, that we need to create for that so that it doesn't get torn asunder um, in the waves of challenge. And as we say in the book, the curves of collapse that we're all going to ride around and down. Okay, I'm going to take you to the next step because I think this follows, you know, very yeah. well with what you just explained. You, you talk in the book a lot about relationship and, and stuff and connection. I hope that with this podcast, you know, I contribute to connecting people, you know, to understand, at least to be aware that there are other perspectives out there. I have a question for you uh, from the previous guest. For that, I would love to hark back to what we were talking about earlier, which is spirituality. I would ask the next guest what they would say to anybody, but particularly to a young person who is wondering why they should be open to religion. What can taking a religious view or being active in a religious community add to their life that might currently be missing or that can't be found elsewhere? Mm, That does follow nicely. Um, I, I do think it's about recognizing that there are, there are sources of wisdom and there are rituals of meaning making and connection generating that have often been really well tended in religious communities, in faith communities, um, and through spiritual practice. And I think sometimes when you take the, what has been, I don't like the phrase, the cafeteria approach, right? The going in and picking and choosing the pieces you like. Um, I find that a little denigrating, but when you take that approach, you are left a little isolated in terms of figuring out Um, how to put the pieces together and draw the connections. And one of the most important things as an educator that I feel my role has been, my role continues to be with young people, is maybe because I'm a little bit further down the road and I've had the chance to read more, do more, grapple with more, stay stay with more of the trouble. Um, It's easier for me from my vantage point to help see those connections, to help them draw them, to just point and shift an angle a little bit. Um, and I've lately felt like a like it's not optimal to only have those relationships in the context of education, um, formal education, education you pay for. And I I've spent a lot of time doing, I, you know, direct this eco-gather initiative and we think about lifelong learning and accessible education. But I think there's an education of the heart and the mind and more ephemerally the spirit that come together that need to continue throughout one's life. And being open to religion, to spiritual practice, and to some form of faith community um, that allows you to continue living the questions, to live them together, and to draw from wisdom feels really valuable to me. feels potentially radical to me if 
it's truly about living the questions um, and really constantly going back to shared values and feeling like your values and your the way you prioritize those values um, align with that of the religious community that you're seeking belonging and membership in. And I think that, that there's a lot of potential there. Um, there's something many of us may have lost when we said, this doesn't fit me. It doesn't feel right. It feels too prescriptive or exclusive or rules-based um, or dated or exclusionary or tied to harmful pasts that we're not reckoning with enough. Um, and that was certainly, that that whole monologue is a series of thoughts that I had um, and kind of left. Like, I, you know, I, I made a departure from the Catholicism I was raised in and I just said, well, I'll just look for wisdom everywhere um, and be open to it all. And I think there are there are containers that we need. Um, and I also, I guess I would say just to the more general concept of spirituality and spiritual practice, and um, we tend to separate things between the rational realm and the affective or emotional realm. And then we try to balance those things just like we try to balance work and life as though they're somehow separable. Um, and I think actually when we don't attend to the spiritual, we miss all of the connective fiber, the mycelia, the roots um, that that unite our minds and our hearts. And that's really important. And that's going to continue to be important as we navigate some difficult times. Your question for the next guest. Mm. Um, we didn't talk about this as much as I, I might've imagined we would, but you've taken me on such an interesting journey here. I, in the book, I talk quite a bit about trying to distinguish the transactional from the relational. Um, and I think that the prevailing culture and economic system we live in has us transacting all the time, um, putting a dollar value on something, paying that dollar value, and insisting on getting something of equal value in return with this level of immediacy and direct exchange. Um, and you can think about moving beyond that to barter where maybe we're not converting something to currency, but we're, um, but we're doing a direct exchange. But then you can think even more broadly towards a gift economy, right? Where you're giving with no expectation of immediate receiving, trusting that you exist in a culture where um, things will come back to you. We can think about reciprocity. And, I talk about, um, Michelle and I talk about in the book and in my work, I talk a lot about really moving from transactionality to relationality, um, to a whole cluster of nuanced exchanges that are going to happen over time to circles and cycles. And so I, I would ask the next guest, what is an um, area of your life that you would look at and currently say feels pretty transactional that you think could be more relational um, and what would it look like if it was more relational and how might you start to move it in that direction? It's never a binary. 
Um, it's never an all or nothing. And we need some transactions in our life just to make things a little easier and more manageable. When I first started talking about relationality as an ethic, one of my dear colleagues said to me, oh, I don't want, I don't want to do that with you. I don't want to do that work. I don't want, I can't imagine having to have a relationship with everything. It's exhausting. And she's kind of right. You know, it can be unwieldy. Um, which is why we talk about moving toward relationships. So yeah, I would ask the next guest, what feels unhelpfully transactional? How, what might it look like to be more relational? And how would you start to get from where you are to where you want to be? I have a couple of questions left that I really would like to ask you. So we do it a little bit more in the in a rapid fire type sure. of way. Um, Steve Hartman of CBS at the moment uh, in the US examines how one simple act of kindness could potentially create a ripple effect. I have two questions for you about this. One is, what do you think about one simple act of kindness? I mean, the potential of it. And second, if I would ask you right now on the spot to commit to one simple act of kindness this week, what would you do? Mm. Um, I do believe that every act of kindness has the potential to ripple and do beautiful things in the world. And I don't believe that all of them will, right? And so the minute we think doing our act of kindness is going to change the world, we are in a transactional dynamic. Um, but instead, if we say each act of kindness has the potential to shift someone's heart, to make them feel cared for, um, to make them feel seen, to make them feel understood, then yes, the aggregate of that, the, the accumulated wonder of all of that kindness has a lot of potential power. Um, and maybe it's the only thing that does have that much power. Um, so that's that's how I would, I would respond to that. And um, I think the act of kindness I'm happy to commit to because I, I would love to see more of us doing this um, is I'd like to go up to um, a near neighbor who is still a stranger to me or maybe someone I've only kind of waved through the car windshield at mm -hmm. and make an offering of a third of my day, an afternoon, a morning, an evening um, for a need they have and to let them, you know, to, to notice that there might be some boundaries. Maybe I'm not the person who can meet the kind of need they express, but to tell them a little bit about um, the kinds of things we could explore together and then to show up and do it. And that could be anything, you know, as simple as stacking wood or weeding a garden bed or sharing a meal or minding some children. Um, and, and it could be listening to their story. It could be helping them write that story down. It could be a ride somewhere. Um, it's not up to me to identify what the need is or what I have to offer, but rather to show up in that unexpected and maybe slightly awkward way of saying, I'm here, you're here. How can my presence serve and honor yours? Um, and I think if we all tried that a little more some interesting connections and combinations would emerge and some of those might blossom into relationships we talked about dancing um you know i i for, for me um that's related to music very much i like music so i always have a question about music as well um 
if I would ask you to come up with a piece of music or a song that embodies for a big part who Nicole is, what you are about, which song or piece of music would that be and why? Mm, that one's the easiest question you've asked me. Um, so automatic for me. Um, Crowded Table, which um, is a song performed by the High Women. I think their album by the same name of 2019. Um, it was written by Natalie Hemby and Lori McKenna. And if I, if I started to tell you why, I'd pr probably wind up singing or sing talking all of the lyrics. But the chorus is, I want a house with a crowded table and a place by the fire for everyone. Let us take on the world while we're young and able and bring us back together when the day is done. Um, and anyone for whom parts of this conversation has resonated and who hasn't heard that song, I encourage you to, to find it because um, it it's verses and chorus weave in and out of a lot of what we've been talking about and really um, feel like the life I want to live. Hmm. Cool. And I, I uh, always take this moment also to remind the listeners that um, if you are using Spotify, you can go to and you you type in hashtag walk, talk, listen, you will see all the songs mm. uh, that have been chosen by uh, our guests. So and it's really cool from classical music to hard rock, um, you know, rhythm and blues, R&B, name it, it's all there. Um yeah, Nicole, we, we are slowly coming to an end. We, we, had, we touched upon some great stuff. I have actually more questions that I wanted to ask you. But um, yeah, let, let us, what, what, yeah, do you have any message, invitation or question for the listeners? Hmm. I, I would invite, the thing I'm inviting a lot of people to try to be a part of right now um, is a reawakening of imagination and um, a reawakening of the other ways of being in the world that are possible. Um, in our book, Michelle and I talk about unlocking some of that possibility through attentiveness to relationship, but and using story as a way to um, as a way to get there as a set of tools. But I, I think I'm also inviting a much broader, sort of reawakening of imagination. Often because of the work that I do and all of the challenges I grapple with, whether they're deep inequities or structural isms or um, horrible environmental degradation at the hands of uh, the ways in which we try to feed ourselves. And my kids know a lot about this and, and they've been at times, I think, overexposed <laughs> to some of the hard in the world um, and my sense of like, better that you know, and so we can can build our way together, um, has has been hard at moments for them. And, and one day in a kind of fit of grappling with that, one of them said to me, I just don't know why humans are so terrible, why we're such a terrible force on this planet. Um, and I just had this moment of saying, gosh, that's that's what he's taken away from his first 10 years. Like that's that's not the message. Um, and so we entered a conversation about the fact that we don't have to be homewreckers, that um, there are other ways to 
inhabit, to home make, um, to belong on this planet. And so I, I guess my invitation is to radical imagination of other ways of being here, not kind of how to make certain things slightly less harmful or more sustainable, but really what are the other ways we could relate to each other, to our places, to the land, to time um, that would not just solve the problems, but expand our possibilities. Any any question that I should have asked you but did not? Mm. I feel like you asked me so many good questions. Um, no, I, I suppose something people often ask me. Mm -hmm. uh, well, people often ask me questions about things like, what do you think about organic food? Or what do you think about regenerative agriculture? Or what do you think about whatever the particular solution du jour is to kind of get ourselves, whether it's toward a sustainable development goal or within the donut? Um, and, you know, how do I feel about it? And what do I think its potential is? And um, I'm kind of grateful you didn't ask me that particular question just because I get it quite often. But I think a topic that maybe is worth kind of sneaking in here is that I think it's less about with any kind of solution, whether it's in the food system or it is a um, social justice strategy or whether it's a sustainability, clean energy thing. Um, I think the real questions are around bridging versus breaking. Um, and what are, what are the new ways of doing things that create bridges and ideally stack a bunch of bridges together so they create circles and cycles as opposed to the solutions that break us apart? Um, which are the ones that really look to the logic of natural systems, which are all connected in those bridging ways. Um, not always in the beautiful ways, right? Not everything is sort of symbiotic and synergistic. There's parasitism and there's, you know, predation and all kinds of things. But but how do we how do we find how do we answer the question of the value of a particular solution? Um, by assessing the degree to which it expands our capacity for relating versus transacting and bridging versus breaking. Yeah, for the listeners, if they want to know more about bridging versus breaking, um, buy the book, Feeding Each Other, that Nicole wrote with Michelle. I, I, I really, uh, yeah, um, encourage you to check it out it's it's a it's a an, a very an easy read a very easy words to explain what the issues are and um yeah I, th I think you will feel hopeful if you read that book so so we can we can change this world together um by being more 
you know, relational by connecting and be open to each other as well, I think. So um, th thank you so much for today, uh, Nicole. Really enjoyed it. I hope you, you did as well. <laughs> I really did, Maurice. Thank you so much. Uh, yes. Th thank you so much. And, and all the best with what you do and, and uh, for the next book or with this uh, teaching or with just being in your garden. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.